Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin for the next hour to take your Bible questions. If you'd like to send them to us, you can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like spelling on that, you can join us on our website, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen on the purple bar, and you'll be able to engage with us when we are not only live streaming, but also have a countdown clock to when that will next be taking place. We also are hosting our bi-weekly Bible studies on that platform, and we'll look forward to engaging with you. And note that as the broadcast is taking place, we'll be keeping an eye on the comments section there, so feel free to send us your questions at any time, hopefully the time that we can see them, but any time will suffice. We have a YouTube page, which is a reason for hope, and a Facebook page titled Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, rather. But since social media has developed a reputation of taking things down without probable cause or reason, or rather not good causes or reasons, we will want to make sure that there is a provision for that. If we aren't live streaming and it's not due to aforementioned technical difficulties, that is my responsibility entirely we will give you notifications for that. If we don't, then still know you can join us on our website, which is where we want to engage with you. And if you want to send us questions after the broadcast, or perhaps even during, just not in public, anonymity will be respected. We have our email address, which is, again, at the bottom of the screen, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Remember that the standards for the questions that we are going to be answering will be sincere Bible questions. Sincere means that you want to hear the answer. Bible means that the ultimate goal and end purpose of the question leaves us in the Bible, and of course that they are asked in the form of a question. We won't dox you points or money like on Jeopardy, but it will affect our ability to engage with you. We'll do our best to make sure that if a question is unclear to us that we'll clarify in the comments as they're being asked, but we're looking forward to engaging with you as long as those three standards are upheld. We also like to start off the topic of the week with some apologetics issues, and following up with our issue last week of the purpose of church, lives of the believers, we wanted to follow up on some of those topics as well. Before we get into anything more than what we already have, why don't we take some time to pray and make sure God's a part of the broadcast too? Sounds good. All right. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be in your word among your people and in your spirit. Allow the last to be what ultimately comes first and that your people are blessed, your name is glorified, and your word is properly represented and honored. We pray all this would be done in the name of Jesus. Amen. So starting us off, just a quick recap from last week. We discussed the ever so dicey issue of you don't discuss religion and politics and polite company because ironically they're the only two things that matter. But clarifying the role of a church and the purpose of which, we wanted to build a bit more on the issue of this being your church. And I know it's taboo, especially among pastor circles, because they know the moment that you hear that from somebody, you're never going to see him again. I don't know if it's just a jink system or what, but the 
idea of committing yourself to a particular church and a particular fellowship, the purpose for which that, of course, is meant to accomplish. People get kind of iffy about having membership roles, and there's a time and a place to discuss that. But when it comes to being a church member, what would be the apologetic aspect of that and making sure we not only know what we're doing, but why? Yeah, absolutely. A very interesting question, one that's very useful for our day today. So as we, as you mentioned, Sean, last week we talked about what the role of the church is in a community, and it basically is to set up its own little mini-system. Uh, so the church becomes a state unto itself, and it exists inside the larger state because, again, Christians are citizens of another country. So we're setting up almost like, if you want to think of it this way, it's like an embassy, right? That's what the church is. It's our own little embassy that represents the country that we're really from, that we're really going to, which would be the heavenly kingdom of God. And we're doing our best to implement those kinds of cultural aspects and those types of ideals within the community around us, and we're trying to implement them the best we can. And because of that, the church will always be at odds to one extent or another with what we call the state. We're always trying more and more to implement the ways that we think that culture should run into the culture around us and to varying degrees of success, even though that's not our main purpose, right? The main purpose of the church is not to spread political ideology. It is a function or a facet of the church to be salt and light to the world, to be able to spread the good news of the kingdom, not only in capacity to understanding our king, but to understanding his principles and the fact that they are good for all, even if they don't believe in him as the originator of those aspects or ideologies. Now, this function is, again, something that's been really lost in modern-day Western church identity, is the capacity to understand my need to be in a local fellowship. The vast majority of people that identify as Christian in Western civilization don't think it's important to be a member of a local church. They see no reason to do it. They don't know why they need to. And their reasoning kind of makes some sense, but we're going to get into the Bible and see that it actually makes no sense. So if you don't read the Bible, it makes a ton of sense. If you do read the Bible, it makes no sense whatsoever. So their idea is, well, you can really get Bible teachings anywhere now. I don't need to go to a local church. I could go onto YouTube. I could look up pastors from around the world. I could listen to their sermons. I don't need to go to church to get worship anymore. Uh, once again, I could listen to worship wherever I want. I could download it on my iPod. I could listen to it while I'm working out. Why do I need to go to a local church when all these things are at my disposal without actually having to physically inconvenience myself on, say, a Sunday morning or Wednesday or Saturday night and actually go to a church when I can just do it from the convenience of my own home, and then I can just have my friends and my communities in the locals, uh, the locales that I'm familiar with. That seems to be a pretty consistent argumentation from people, especially in my generation, your generation, Sean, that what's the point? Why do we have to go? It doesn't really matter very much. Well, when you go to the Bible, the Bible actually gives us reasons as to why we need to be a part of a local church. And believe it or not, none of the explicit and well-reasoned uh, reasonings that are given by the apostles have really anything to do with worship or Bible study. Now, worship and Bible study are definitely facets of the church. Paul mentions it in First and Second Timothy. They're very important. Worship isn't actually mentioned at all. That we know it is important because the longest book in our Bibles is the book of Psalms, which is all praise and worship music. And as you could tell, if you read the Psalms, these are clearly collective lyrics. 
They say things like we and our. This is not a singular individualistic type of lyrics. This is clearly meant to be sung in a congregation. But that being said, those aren't the key defining facets of the church as the apostles make it known throughout their writing. So there are many I could go to, but I think 1 Corinthians 12 is the best one we can go to because Paul gives a very interesting metaphor that helps us understand this point. So in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, it says, And as the body is one, and as many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greeks, whether slave or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact the body is not one member, but many. So the metaphor that he gives is that of a human body, saying that just like the human body is one, it's unified, it has many complementary members within it. The hand is not the foot, the foot is not the hand, and the hand and the foot are not the eye or the heart or the kidneys, right? Every single part of your body has a very unique and distinctive function that only works because it is different and serves a different role than the others. So in this way, he's helping us understand community. Now, this is very different than what we would call collectivism. In collectivism, it's more just everyone becoming part of the one great whole. So I had an experience with this when I was in the military. When you go into the military, you're actually trying not to be an individual in the military. You are trying to break down your individuality so that you can be associated with a greater collective whole. Uh, that you now just become like a facet of. You're not really an organ, per se. You're just some malleable piece of clay <laughs> that's just inside of this greater hole that is going to be shaped and turned into whatever the people who are in charge of you want you to be, and you're going to be moved around as they see fit. That's not what Paul seems to be saying when he uses this metaphor of body. When he's saying body, he's saying you remain an individual but you take all of your attributes, you take all of the things that make you you, and then you bring them into the body and serve the body. So in other words, you don't lose your individuality, but you see your individuality as a service to those around you that complement you in their individuality. Uh, anything you'd like to add to that or clarify? No, just noting that point. All right, cool. So one of the reasons why this is so important is because Lewis mentions that collectivism, so if you, if you want to know more about this in probably a more eloquent and uh, just better way, you could listen to C.S. Lewis's essay on membership. It's available on YouTube, or you could just read it. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's in his collection of essays called The Weight of Glory. But at any rate, in this essay on membership, Lewis makes the statement that he saw, and remember, he's writing this in the 40s or the 50s, I believe. Uh, he saw that the world was moving more and more towards collectivism because the world was becoming less and less communal. So in other words, when you have a society that's becoming more disjointed, more fractured, the institutions of family and local community are starting to break apart and we're becoming more urbanized, we're becoming more in large cities and things like that, we tend to lose ourselves a little bit. We lose who we are as individuals because we don't understand our place in the whole. So uh, look at it this way. In a small town or a small tribal community, 
who you are in relativity to the tribe is well established early on. You would usually only have like, let's say, one butcher. You would have one blacksmith. You would have one uh, person who goes out and, and hunts and makes weapons and things like that. So each individual within the tribe has an individual role that complements the tribe. It's easy for them to understand their identity. It's easy to understand what makes them them. But if you live in a big city, you are a completely replaceable member of the whole. No one would notice if you left the city. No one would notice. Even if you left your neighborhood, probably no one would even notice. I mean, just think real quickly, how many of your neighbors do you know? Right. By name, you know who they are, you know what they want to do with their lives and things like that. Most of us may have like four or five or something that we know by name if we're doing really good in our local community. Some of us would be like zero, you know, like I just kind of run into them on the street sometimes, but I really don't know what's going on in their lives. I might know them on a first name basis, but I might just refer to them as man. Hey, man, you know, like that's that's really all you got going. That's really unusual for human history. We don't, we aren't like that. We're not built for that type of living in society. Uh, traditionally throughout human society, you would know your neighbors. You would know all of your neighbors. Even if you lived in a large city state, you would still know everyone that's in your local community because, you know, you walked everywhere. It was important. Your neighborhood literally was your protection. And you would, uh, because again, because you would walk everywhere and you couldn't transport very far, you would go to stores run by your neighbors, right? You would, you would buy stuff from your neighbors. You would trade with your neighbors. You would sell with your neighbors. It was important to know the people in your local community. Nowadays, we live next to strangers. We drive around strangers. We go to work with strangers and we basically are ruled by strangers. We don't know any of the people that comprise the facets of our life. That's very dangerous and degrading to the human soul and psyche. It makes us long for something greater than ourselves, for sure. And this is why at various times in human history, you see rising collectivism. It tends to grow very rapidly and out of nowhere. And in the West, it usually takes the form of cults or heresies. So for instance, in the 1800s, what was going on in American society that may make fertile ground for cults? The Civil War, right? We have a lot of disunity inside of a nation, a lot of people not knowing what's going on. You have the bloodiest war in American history. People are trying to figure out who they are, where they belong, what their identity means, and things like that. And they look for it in these really self-confident individuals who give them a program and say, you want to know who you are? Submit yourself totally to me and my program, and you'll figure out exactly how you fit into this tribe, exactly how you fit into this community, and we will give you a sense of identity and self. Uh, you have that in the 1800s in America. You have Joseph Smith. You have Charles Taze Russell. And then you go into the 1900s, and there's a little bit of a break in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, because people were pretty collective as a result of our war with Germany and the Nazis. But then in the 60s, you have another huge uptick of cult behavior in the 60s and 70s. Why? Because once again, people don't know who they are. The Great War is over. We're a superpower. What does that mean for America? What does that mean for our kids? A lot of disunity, a lot of misunderstanding, and therefore people seek identity and a sense of self in these big, stronger, self-assured individuals who could tell you who you really are. Uh, you also see this, uh, the rise of Muhammad. Once again, if you study what was going on in Arabia at that time, it makes a lot of sense that a guy like Muhammad would be able to unify these polytheistic, disunified tribes that really didn't have much connection other than the Kaaba, you know? So you, you have 
moments in history that breed this type of collective understanding and desire for unity, but it's not true unity because you have to sacrifice your position as an individual in order to fit into these types of systems. They're actually identity, they, they claim to be identity shaping, but they're, also, they're actually identity disintegrating. Right? They will destroy you as an individual and build you into whatever the whole needs you to be. And once again, in our society, we're seeing a huge growth in this type of cult-like mindset. People, especially people in the church, don't know who they are. They don't know what their identity is. And yeah, me and Sean harp on apologetics all the time. It's very important to understand apologetics and defending your faith and understanding who you are in Christ. But unfortunately, most people don't make decisions with their minds. They make decisions with their wills and their hearts. So if you're going to a church all your life and you're a kid and you don't know where you belong in that greater whole, you have no induction into the greater community of the church body, you don't know where you belong, you don't know why you're important to that church community, you don't consider yourself a member, you go off to college, and all of a sudden you're inducted into this university where there's a whole that you could be a part of, and there's a system, and there's a culture, and then you have leaders that are telling you who you are, and they're very, you know, it's very strange. People wouldn't think this type of language would be uh, appealing to youth because everyone con condemns my generation, your generation as being lazy, but the professors are militant. They're not saying, hey, just be whoever you want to be. They're like, no, this is the right way, and if you want to be a good person, you need to be fighting for this stuff. You need to be fighting for inclusion and equity, and you need to be fighting for social justice. And kids in colleges today that are aimless, they're eating it up. They are ascribing to these ideologies in mass numbers. Why? Because they don't know where they belong. They don't know, they don't have a sense of identity, they don't have a sense of self, and they're finding it where they can. So churches, all that to say, churches, the reason why people are not finding it in churches is because churches have, A, lacked the ability to communicate the importance of attending a local church and being a member, and B, people have forgotten, that's why I go to church. I'm not going to church just to download a sermon. I'm not going to church just to hear some good tunes. I am going to church to be a member of this community. And that's as much on the church to create positions for people as it is for the individual to seek those positions and to seek to benefit the whole. Anything you'd like to add to that or clarify? And just noting as well, we aren't, as a church, eager to establish those roles. We want to make sure people are trustworthy and mature and capable of living out that as God has equipped them. But noting that that first requires them to be built up, we do this in our children's ministry all the time. We're constantly providing venues for them to engage further, but the problem is, and again, I don't hold this against them, nor am I complaining, they're junior hires and high schoolers, I don't expect much, mm -hmm. but the open doors and the ones who walk through the doors are two different matters. Both have to turn their key to launch the nuke, so to speak. If the opportunity is available in the church, but we, and this is where the animus is on us, don't want to engage because, you know, I just, I, this is my weekend time, I'm off of work, I don't want to have to prolong this anymore, the kids are upset, I want to just get some food in me and be on my way. That's on you. But at the same time, it is our responsibility as spiritual leaders and examples to note these are the sort of things that will enable you mm. to be the kind of people, not only that you are in the church, but the kind of people that you should be as the 
church. Mm. And this is just as important because when people say put on a holy halo and then are, you know, beating their kids at home or abusing their wives, this is showing a double standard and this basically disvaluing of their severe, of, I guess, uh, to put it in the most plain and simple terms as possible without going through a story, to essentially devalue the severity of what it means to be a Christian, mm. not just to be a member of the body of Christ, but a representative of Christ to a world separate from Him. Mm. If I pursue those roles, then I'm asking myself, how can I, not only in this environment, live out those equipped truths, but also to understand them firsthand in places outside of the safer environments, that is, people who share my worldview and that are enabling it. And that's the same thing that we do in any sphere of education or of training. You're put in an environment where you're constantly being inundated, trained, and retrained in the sort of things that are relevant to your profession. I am studying theology, so I surround myself with books. I'm always reading, and I'm always making sure that's where my mind's at. You mentioned a military context and noting that you're always doing weapons drills and exercises, physical and rigorous exercise, understanding short-term acronyms or acronyms and so forth. That is the mindset. So in a church fellowship, it's not just for the sake of, in pursuing those positions, to have that title to lord over others, but to serve for the sake of your greater service, which isn't in the church, but out of it, and thus the role of community, mm. not in, but also out. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just so real quick, uh, the obvious question that someone might have is, well, I've heard about church membership before. Um, well, what is that, and why do certain churches do it and certain churches don't? Well, in order to establish this a little bit more definitively, especially in the West, they came up with this concept of church membership. So we'll officially kind of induct you into the church, and you'll become a member. So anyone can attend, but members are saying, I want to be a part of this community, and therefore I want to be held by certain ethical standards. So for instance, if someone came to our church who is, say, in the LGBTQ lifestyle, they're in a homosexual relationship, something like that, and they just want to attend, fine. But if someone wants to be a part of this community, then there would be some challenging. And I could even say the same thing about someone who's, let's say, having sex outside of marriage or using illicit drugs or getting drunk in various other ways, things or like that. Or is in an unrepentant affair or is struggling and not, or not struggling, who is embracing pornography, Absolutely. any other immorality. We'd go to 1 Corinthians 5 and say, you're named a brother. Right. Not, not of the world, right. not being evangelized. You're right. a brother. There is a difference. That's right. So anyone who, as Sean said, is acknowledged acknowledging I am a Christian and I am a member of this church. I'm attending this church. It is my church home. They're held to that standard of the church. They are under the governing authority of the church system, and therefore they can be disciplined outside of that community or not. Now, like I said, I, I'm not saying anything pro or against official church membership. Our church doesn't do it, and there's reasons behind it that if you guys have questions about it, you could ask. But the designation of membership doesn't really make much of a difference. It's about the heart. So you could be an official church member, but if you aren't, again, investing in that community and considering yourself a part of it, then that official designation doesn't really mean much. Yeah, what um, it generally means among our group is on volunteering. That right. would essentially mean the same thing as it would in a membership role in any other church that absolutely. does those things. Uh, absolutely. So uh, my convicting question for you today is, do you consider yourself a member of your local church, the one that you go to on Sunday? If you don't go to one on Sunday, uh, I really, really encourage you, read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and ask yourself the question, does it seem like Paul is suggesting this, or does it seem like Paul is saying, 
we got to do it. This is a part of the Christian life. There is no such thing as individualistic Christianity. We need to be a part of a collective whole. We need to have roles and responsibilities within our life that relate to our relationship with God and that provide accountability for our Christian living. Those are very important facets of the Christian life. They're not things to be ignored or denied. I'd also encourage you to read the book Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I think, you know, if you really want a book where you're going to see why it's so important, read a book written by a guy where that type of communal Christian life was being taken away from his country, right? He was writing at the time where Germany was basically saying, Either you subscribe to Nazi ideology or you're not a church anymore. And so Bonhoeffer started, we didn't start, but he was one of the founding kind of charter members of the underground church within Nazi Germany, resisting the Fuhrer and the Nazi regime. Very powerful story, for sure. But read his, read his book, Life Together, very, very short, and you'll understand why it's so important to be inside of a local body, local fellowship. But if you are in a local body, local fellowship, again, are you a member? Do people know who you are? Would you be missed if you just left tomorrow? Are there people, not just the pastors, but the local congregants, who you know their story, they know your story, you're living life together, you know what's going on, you know their kids, they know your kids. There's community happening, not just attendance, not just I'm going there on a Sunday uh, Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. You really, really belong to that community. And are you, if you're not, are you making strides to become that way? Do some research. Go onto your church's website. What kind of small groups do they have? What kind of Bible studies do they have? Get plugged into those best you can. Try to introduce yourself to people on Sunday mornings. This kind of community, like I said, it's so foreign to our country right now, and that's one of the reasons why the soul of America is just deteriorating on the vine. It's because we don't have this type of community, and people are finding false community. They're finding places where they're affirmed and accepted and praised, and they're conflating that with love, acceptance, and belonging, which only happens in real, genuine relationships that are cultivated through time, effort, and investment. So make sure that you're not settling for that weak and pale substitute, and you're becoming connected with the people in your local body. Very, very valuable and important. Anything else you'd like to add to that? No, we'll just conclude on that point, and note if you have further questions on this, we'll be happy to address them, but going out to your questions now, uh, Isaiah's been very patient with this. We've been wanting to get to it, but time continues to roll on. He wants to know, essentially down to its nutshell, how the experience for teachers will be in regards to punishment or reward in the Great White Throne Judgment. Now, the reason why Isaiah is bringing this up is because, for those listening, he has two passages in mind. I'll read them, and then we'll go through the implications of them, just so that we're not misunderstanding what's being put forward here. The first is obviously in James chapter 3 and verse 1, where you read, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For, this is verse 2, we all stumble in many things. And then he goes on to make a point about how the thing we stumble in the most is our mouths, and James is referencing this in light of Isaiah chapter 6, but that's another topic. The second passage that uh, Isaiah has in mind is, interestingly enough, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, where it notes, therefore, in light of verses 6 through uh, 8, the fact that if we're absent from this body, we're present with the Lord, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For teachers, it would be 
in their teaching. For anyone else, it would be in that else. But going on, it says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, that'll be important, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. We persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I trust we also are well known in your consciences. So good or bad, generally that's thought or interpreted to mean the ultimate good or the ultimate bad, that you either stay in heaven or you are separated from God forever. But when we understand not just this principle of teaching is not a light position because with it comes a degree of responsibility. James brings up this caution in James chapter 3 regarding everyone wanting to become a teacher because with increased knowledge also comes increased accountability to that knowledge. If you did something unknowing, Jesus made a parable about this, he was worthy of many stripes will be beaten with few, many, he was worthy of few stripes will be beaten with many, for to him whom much is given, much shall be required. This is the mindset then behind people who maybe for better or for worse, are avoiding areas of ministry because they think that they're setting themselves up for spiritual disaster. That because I still have a fallen sinful nature, as James describes, and because I don't have absolute confidence in myself, nor should you, (laughs) to maintain holiness in this godly position, oh, well, I'm basically just setting myself up to the back of Heaven's Stadium, if you will, the, the nosebleed section, if you want to use the American term. Maybe they have it in soccer in Europe too, but I digress. When Isaiah is reconciling these passages, and maybe just wanting to understand it in an academic sense, why is it that this caution isn't meant to basically prevent people from pursuing legitimate ministries, but also at the same time to understand their relationship with God in its fullness? Do we serve a holy God? Hmm. Yeah, no, very good question, Isaiah. Now, what this is meant to establish is this concept of power. Now, in our society, since we're permeated with Christian ideologies, the idea of with great power comes great responsibility rings very true. You know, it's in Spider-Man. Stan Lee wrote it a long time ago. But in most of our movies, we see this idea that people who have great amounts of power also have a, a, a relative amount of responsibility. They have some sort of a standard that they're going to be held to because of the power that they hold. That's something that rings very true with us. It wouldn't have rang very true with the audience that James is writing to. So back in the day, how people saw power is power was just something that you were inherently worthy of. So if you had some sort of a power, that's because the gods have smiled on you. You are better than other men, and therefore you could kind of do whatever you want. So the idea of, I mean, read about the ancient Caesars and how they treated their power. They weren't like, ooh, we're we're unworthy of this, and we just want to use this power to benefit others. Or how does my decision affect this person? No, it's me. <laughs> That's, That's right. the only one I'm concerned about here. It's all about me. And everyone expected that, by the way. So nowadays in America, if a politician did something to serve their own interests, we're like, oh, that's so bad, that's so evil, that's so selfish. Back in the day, that was par for the course, right? In fact, it was expected. If a king didn't do that, that would be seen as a sign of weakness. You know, why are you out looking for the out for the good of the common man? Aren't you above the common man? Aren't isn't it all about you, right? If you're going to be this grand imposing figure, then make your rule about you. That was something that was very much expected in the ancient world. Can't remember what movie it was. 
But there was a time where someone is is in kind of the, one of those more ancient roles, and they refuse some of the the bennies. You know, they refuse to to be basically step on the hands of the servants or you know like be carried around in a big throne. They're like, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to walk around like a normal person. And instead of people being like, Oh my gosh, how magnanimous! You know, this person is just like one of us. People are like, This is weakness. This person is not utilizing the peasants the way he should. He's not exercising his power in this very selfish way. Therefore, he's not worthy of the rule. That's how they interpreted that. And we actually see people looking down on the apostles for not acting this way. So in 2 Corinthians, the Corinthians didn't like Paul because he didn't extort them for money. Now, that might sound weird to you. You're like, wait, they didn't like him because he didn't steal money from them? And they liked these false apostles because they did steal money from them and extort money from them. Yes, that's how they thought in the ancient world. Especially so, in Greece. Especially in and Greece. And especially, especially in Corinth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that, that kind of writings may sound weird to us because, like I said, the gospel has shaped our thinking. What James is saying, and he's saying it to an audience that understood power in that way, he's saying... You need to look at power in a different way. Power is not given to you because you're better than everybody else. Power is given to you because God expects you to be responsible with it. It's graciously given to you. You don't deserve it. You haven't earned it in any particular way, but God has graciously given it to you. And some might say, well, aren't there different qualifications for people who could teach? Don't they have to have certain skills and abilities? Yeah, but who gave you the abilities? Right? So God, yes, God wants you to use those abilities, but again, with great power comes great responsibility. God's given you this capacity to lead and to teach and to do various things that move the hearts and minds of large groups of people. If you use that power, you better be sure you're using it to lead them to the right location. If you're not, yeah, there's a responsibility that you hold that the average person doesn't have. Now, by the way, you can squander your gifts in one of two ways. You can misuse them, or you can do what the servant did in Jesus' parable of the talents. You could just not use them at all. So if your solution to this problem is, well, I don't want to be under the stricter judgment, so therefore I'm not going to use my gifts. Well, if you do that, then you are bearing your gift in the ground, right? You're not you're not using it. Now, I want to be very careful here because if you read the parable, the, the person who gets, uh, doesn't buries the talent goes to hell. I'm not saying you're going to go to hell. I'm just using that as a principle to say that if you don't use the gifts that God has given you for his glory and his purposes, you haven't escaped whatever James is talking about. If you have the ability, you have the responsibility. And if you don't use it well, or if you don't use it at all, you haven't escaped the responsibility that is on you. And so, the responsibility then is the proper fulfillment of that role. It's not to say, and we can maybe apply this personally, when I'm a part of an accountability group, my incentive isn't to avoid any possible indulgence because then I'll have to be accountable to it. The accountability was there, whether I acknowledged it or not. Right. But the immediate consequences, because I've chosen to make myself vulnerable in this group, is not just adding to, but emphasizing what's already there. I have a job as a Christian to live in light of my convictions, in light of my claims. When I fall short of that, I can, on my own, apologize, confess, repent, amputate if necessary, and continue on in my life. But those who have particular areas of struggle pursue these accountability groups. Why? Because 
as Christians, we bear a stricter judgment. The world's going to be the world, but the church should live in light of what Jesus has said and done. The people who take this seriously aren't at greater risk of going to hell. They're at a greater awareness of all they have to look forward to in heaven and want to pursue it all the more. Mm-hmm. So if I take a fatalistic approach to Scripture, I just stop at James chapter one verse or chapter three verse one and section A or the six stricter judgment and say that's it. Judgment, the conclusion. Well, there's two kinds of judgments. There is ultimate judgment and there is reward-based judgment, right. which was Paul talking about in Second Corinthians five. Reward-based judgment. So the good and the bad aren't the... Heaven uh, or hell, yeah. yeah. It's the rewardable right. and the dismissible, right. saying these things don't contribute to the ribbon ceremony. Right. It's a different metaphor that he had used with the Corinthians in his first letter to them. So in the first letter, he used the metaphor of purifying fire. He's like, there are things that we do in the flesh, and he's like, it's like when someone takes something to a purifying fire for fine and precious metals. So if you have something that is made out of a fine and precious metal, the fire purifies it even more, but if you have something that's made out of something unworthy, uh, or unprecious, then it will be dissolved and burnt up by the fire. But so, the incentive for both is what? More gold, less wood. In his point in Second Corinthians 5, it's more good, less bad. And James is noting, you have more good mm-hmm. to do here, but make sure that you understand what you're doing is good, because in teaching with your mouth, a lot of bad can come out of it as well. Absolutely. So, as teachers, you know, me and Sean, we take that responsibility seriously. That's why we're studying so often and so much is because we don't want to deliver something out of error and ignorance that's going to negatively affect those who look up to us in our teaching. Now, we always, that's why we always tell you guys, look it up, right? Make sure that, check us, test us to make sure that we're saying the right thing. But ultimately, that doesn't dissolve us of our responsibilities. We have a responsibility to be studied in the Word, that the things that we say in front of an audience are things that honor God and His truth, and not our own preconceived notions. So absolutely understand that there's a, a great responsibility that comes along with teaching, but that doesn't mean that we should avoid that responsibility, but that we should take it seriously and train ourselves so that we live up to what God has for us. And guess what? Everybody, if you live out the, your Christian life correctly, will eventually become a teacher, right? So if you look at the Bible, let's say the book of Titus, the people in Titus chapter 2 are not official teachers, but it says older men teach the younger men, right? So if you're in a church community long enough, eventually, guess what? People are going to look up to you. And if people start looking up to you, you may not be teaching them with your words, but you are teaching them with your life. And you got to make sure that that lesson honors God and not, again, what you want. So everyone needs to take this responsibility seriously, and everyone needs to implement it in their life so that they honor God. And as Sean said, seek after the reward. There's great reward for being responsible with what God has given you. Yeah, don't think, oh, if I do this, then I'm not going to heaven. No, it's this, if I do this, am I comfortable bringing that with me to heaven? That's the emphasis and point. And speaking of heaven, I've got a question from Craig who wants to know, in heaven, Will we have access to Jesus, or will it be like on earth that only certain people get to have an audience with him? Uh, I know we will be with God and seeing his glory constantly, but will Jesus be readily accessible to everyone? I enjoy this question's kind of undertone because it assumes that Jesus hasn't 
or isn't rather, seeking them out too. What do we know about heaven as far as how Jesus described it and uh, his uh, preference for audiences? You come to me or I'm seeking you out. Uh, Yeah, so Jesus, uh, as we see in his earthly ministry, is constantly seeking people out. Um, And that remains true in his heavenly abode. And when you read John chapter 17, verse 3, he says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and your Son, whom you have sent. So all of heaven is going to be about knowing God and knowing his Son. Intellectually or from firsthand experience, that's important. Yeah, relationally. So the word that Jesus uses there, there were multiple words in Greek to know, uh, to mean to know. And there's one that's very relational, and that's the word that Jesus uses there. So we're to know Jesus in a relational, personal manner. That's very beautiful. And some will say, well, is Jesus omnipresent? Now, that's an interesting question. Is Jesus omnipresent within heaven since he's still confined to a body? God the Son, it would be no. He still bears the title the offspring of David. He didn't cast off his human nature when he returned to the Father. He's a man, albeit a glorified man, but a man nonetheless, bound by time and space to relate to us personally. But knowing that the Father and the Spirit all share those unique attributes with Jesus, and noting Jesus' abilities far exceed our own, the point then being made is on the emphasis of what we're told, not what we assume, and that's the key here. And that's a that's kind of a really important point, because right now, the way that we're relating to Jesus as of this moment on earth is via the Holy Spirit. So none of us have seen Jesus that are alive right now, not personally, but we know him through the active role of the Holy Spirit within our lives. That role will be perfected in heaven. So even if, I mean, and you're going to have eternity, by the way, so you, you'll have an entire eternity to get to know Jesus personally, and you will, right? Yeah. Eternity is a long time. So uh, you will get to know Jesus in a personal way through the Father and the Holy Spirit who are omnipresent, and then you'll also be able to physically interact with Jesus in that in the body that he has. But it kind of blows our minds right now of how that's going to be, because right now we have a spirit and a body, but we don't know much about our spiritual nature. We know an awful lot about our physical nature. In heaven, it seems like we're going to have an equal knowledge of both. And so even though God the Father and the Holy Spirit are both spirit, once you have your spiritual nature becomes more real and relevant to you and you know how to interact with it better, you'll be able to also interact with the Father and the Spirit whenever you want, because obviously they're spirit, and so will you be as well. I mean, you're going to have a body still, but your spiritual nature will just be more real to you. And at the same time as well, the intimacy we'll be able to experience with Jesus won't be something we have to pursue. He pursues it with us. Every time we see this description of heaven, three times in Revelation, chapter 7, chapter 14, and of course, chapter 22, 21 as well, but noting the point of emphasis, that heaven, his reward is with me, that they will dwell among them, and he, he, they will be, uh, he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, not that they'll come to him crying, right. and they'll be like, oh, here, uh, get back to the line, hopefully you'll still have the waterworks before I can pat you on the back, yeah. got a long line here. No, it's making that point of emphasis, and again, for further research on this, there's three passages to keep in mind. 1 Corinthians 15, which describes the resurrection body and noting the unique status we'll have being physical, but also fully known in the Spirit. The second is John, the Gospel of John, chapters 14 through 16, but in particular the sandwich 
<laughs> platter between the two, because in chapter 14, he begins the chapter by describing heaven as with me. The mm. way is me, and the destination, the reward, is also with me. And right. that's also repeated in Revelation 22. Revelation 16, or Revelation John 16, same author, <laughs> John 16 then goes on to describe the fellowship that we have with the Holy Spirit, that Jesus says, you guys are sad, like we are now, and wondering, am I going to be separate from Jesus in heaven, just like the disciples were separate from Jesus physically mm. on this earth? But he says, you should rejoice, not only because I'm going to the Father, but that I will send the Helper. All things that the Father has are mine, and he's going to do what? give them to us through the Spirit. So whether we're physically separated from Jesus or not, we'll be as close in fellowship with Jesus as is possible, if not more so, than anything we've ever known on this earth. Mm. Noting that fellowship with the Spirit. The only problem is our experience, even with the Spirit now, is just kind of to quote the song lyric, hanging on a prayer. I have the promise, I know the reality, but I don't feel it because I'm more body than spirit. When I'm fully spirit, as you said, and fully body, then I'll understand and know and enjoy him in ways that I never could because of my fallen sinful nature, and that's the point that we need to emphasize. Heaven is with Jesus. To be with Jesus is to know the full glory and goodness of the Father firsthand, see John chapter 1. So if I have that, not just being physically with him, but also through the Spirit, and because of the Father, this was his idea, then I understand heaven, regardless of whether I'm physically separated from the incarnate God the Son as he's dwelling among his people, I'm still in fellowship with him. Mm -hmm. I'll still know that relationship in ways more than if I just had him all to myself, and I might as well be, because I also will be devoid of things like the loneliness and separation that we experience in this life, this lack of purpose and joy through relationships because of the fallen sticky business that gets in the way. I'll also be devoid of the greediness, the desire for exclusivity for my benefit, mm. and instead know the kind of exclusivity that God desires with each and every one of us. And as I again note and emphasize for the third time here, with a pun intended in that, the whole Trinity is emphasizing that exclusivity for you. So if that is how he's glorified in the pursuit of you, then I have to ask myself, will that stop when it's realized? Am I just a side pet project for God in his eternal self-fulfilled uh, scheme for more glory? No, he kind of committed himself to this project, see God the Son for point A through Z. But the point then still stands. Heaven is with Jesus. Heaven is knowing the Spirit. Heaven is seeing the Father. All those things are just as meaningful in the same way that all of those persons are God. And knowing the fellowship that I have with him is so key, that is what makes it so wonderful. Not just the sights, the sounds, the smells, etc. It's the fact that Jesus is there. The fact that I will not only be near him, which is fun to a point, but as you said, not personal, but I'm reading my fallen nature into that. What has he said heaven is like? It's constantly with him. The one thing worth talking about, with him. The one thing that makes heaven paradise, with him. And that won't be cut off from us. Otherwise, we wouldn't call it heaven, we'd call it 
hell with heaven intervals. <laughs> so let us know if that helps you out. Anything more to note? No, it's good. All right, going out to our emails. These are a few that we've been meaning to get to for a while now. Uh, clarification on 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12 and 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 23, which make the same point. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful or expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Is Paul saying he can do anything and it's not a sin? Like he can lie, cheat, skill, fornicate, and it's not a against the law for him? Or uh, are those verses in the middle of longer conversations? <laughs> uh, yeah, they are in the midst of longer conversations. Uh, let me give a real quick answer. So essentially when Paul is giving this commandment, what he's saying, and this gets into a longer part of Paul's theology and philosophy, is that we're not under the law, we're under grace. Meaning if you go into the Old Testament, the old covenant that God had with the nation of Israel, they were under the law, and therefore the law had legal penalties for violating it. So sinning under the old covenant wasn't like sinning under the new covenant. When you sinned under the old covenant, you actually engaged in what the Bible calls the curse. You would actually engage in cursings upon you as well as your nation, and the way that you absolved yourself as well as the nation was through substitutionary atonement and sacrificing of animals. So that's what being under the law was like. There was an actual punitive aspect to being under that covenant if you violated the law. In the new covenant, because Jesus has paid it all, right, he's paid all the penalties of sin and death unto the Father on our behalf, therefore sinning no longer has a punitive aspect for it in the Christian's life. So if I sin today, I don't have to do a substitutionary atonement of a calf or something like that, because Jesus has already paid for that sin on the cross. But, and that's what Paul's saying, all things are lawful for me, meaning that if I violate God's commandments, there isn't a legal penalty that's going to be brought against me by the Father. So in a weird way, if you think about the law of the land that you live within, if I violate the law of the land that I live within, is that a sin? Well, it's a sin, but there's also a legal penalty that's going to come against me. It's a wrong thing to do. It's immoral, but there's also a legal consequence to that behavior. What Jesus has done is he hasn't removed the moral element or dimension of our behavior, but he has removed the legal element of our behavior. We cannot be legally penalized by God for sinning because Jesus has already paid for that penalty. That's why he makes the distinction, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient or beneficial to me. So while it's not going to be legally penalized, there's another way it's going to be penalized in my day-to-day -day life. Sinning is bad for me because the law comprises God's good and perfect will for my life. Uh, an easy example of this would be inside of a marriage. So I'm legally married to my wife, but I don't function in my marriage based on legality, right? So my wife, if you're living in an unhealthy marriage, then what happens is your partner continuously threatens you with divorce. They're like, well, you, you know, you made my coffee in a way I don't like. If you do this again, I'm going to divorce you, right? That would be someone who's saying you're under the law. We're not in a relationship. You're under a legal requirement towards me. And if you violate it, I will legally divorce you. That's a bad, dysfunctional, immoral relationship. A healthy relationship 
while I don't fear divorce if I do something negative towards my wife, I do fear the consequences that will happen to our relationship. So if I do something stupid or foolish towards my wife or hurtful towards her, again, I'm not worried that she's going to divorce me. I'm not worried about the legal aspect of it, but I am worried that's going to affect our relationship and the love that we have with one another. So with God, we're not going to be legally penalized for sinning, but there will be a impact in our relationship with God, and that should be much more important to us. We're under love now. We are seeking to love and to cherish God. Now, some legalists will say, well, doesn't that mean that your relationship with God will be less effective or less powerful than the person who is in fear or reverence of the law of God. That's just not true. Uh, If you want to see people really, really work hard, you have to see them motivated by love, not by fear, right? So in my relationship with my wife and my daughter, there is nothing, there is nothing that I wouldn't be willing to do for them. I am working all the time for them. I'd be willing to die for them. That's not because I'm afraid of any consequence. That's because I love and cherish them and want to do these things for them. On the other token, I have fears towards the law, right? When I drive home tonight, I have fears of being pulled over and given a speeding ticket. You know what that fear motivates me to do? To push the boundaries as much as I physically can without getting pulled over, right? I'm not like, I want to go above and beyond for the law. No, I'm like, oh, I'll go five miles over because they won't bust me for that. You know, like, so I, I push the boundaries of the law because I'm not bound by love, I'm bound by fear. That's what Paul means. That's the beauty of the new covenant. Yeah, so then when we take that along with other passages written by the same author, by the way, who obviously didn't take it that way. Romans 6 was written by the same guy who wrote 1 Corinthians 6. But noting the point, chapter 6 and chapter 10 are both talking about what? Emphasis on chapter 6, fleeing sexual immorality. That just because I have the opportunity to do these things, it doesn't mean that I don't do them because there's penalties otherwise. I want to do this because why would I? I have I'm one with the spirit, why would I then make the spirit one with the harlot? And he contextualized it that way. Same thing in chapter 10, why would I cause my brother to stumble if that person is one for whom Christ died? I have liberty because this doesn't affect my fellowship with God, but I also share that heart and I want to live that out. So finish the chapters is the short answer. But uh, continuing on with that point and further reading, here's a question from Yari who heard from a teacher uh, that women teaching in church was not an issue Paul had when he said in Timothy, which one, I don't permit a woman to teach the women were, okay, punctuation here. I don't permit a woman to teach the women were harassing Paul and were talking in the middle of Paul's teaching. Is this true? Yeah, I think they were more talking about an issue that was taking place in Corinth. First Timothy was addressing Timothy's call to teach over Ephesus, but the principle remains the same. The controversy around, obviously, First Timothy chapter 2 and noting, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man for, and then he goes into the order of creation, and therefore, if a woman is supposed to act out this sort of role in what? The pastoral epistles and leadership. Know that they'll be saved by faith and through childbearing, noting the point he then makes in another pastoral epistle, which is in Titus, where he says, older women likewise, regarding teachers, older men to be teachers of good things, to younger women also, a unique ministry that isn't permitted to men. Both have a role in the church, a, as we said, a membership within the body. But for the sake of time and clarity, 
charity both in equal measure. What is, this is an example of historically contextualizing it and noting, well, he was dealing with a specific issue. Women who shaved their heads were, of course, identified as prostitutes. Men who grew out their hair looked like sissies and were also identifying themselves as prostitutes. So if you came into the house of God, the way your culture saw a prostitute, that's to be avoided. That's where the contextualization is. If in this situation it's, oh, well, people were interrupting the service, that's all. There is truth to that, but how does Paul apply it? And we'll take the rest of the time with this. Right. No, very good question. So whenever Paul is going to contextualize something to something that's culturally uh, exclusive, exclusive, he get, he does a very good job of that, right? He always tells us, like, this is because of what's going on in your culture. He makes a very, very clear delineation between what is good for this particular church as opposed to what's good for all churches. So, uh, as you alluded to, Sean, in 1 Corinthians 11, there is a controversy of hair, <laughs> hairdos within that, and head coverings. And Paul makes it very clear this is just for the Corinthian church, it's not for all the churches. In Timothy, he doesn't do that. So in 1 Timothy, he doesn't say, hey, Timothy, this is just for Ephesus. He does give uh, clarifications through creation order to show this is for everybody. So I don't think that he's addressing a very particular issue within Ephesus. I think he is addressing a church issue. And then he goes on to talk. So if you read 1 Timothy 3, the very next chapter, he talks about church authority, deaconship, eldership, that kind of thing. So what can we glean from that, we can glean that there is a particular role that women have within church, and there are boundaries around those roles to promote God's creation order as well as his order within himself. So what that means is that men have a particular role that women can't have within the church, and women have a role within the church that men can't have. We have distinctive roles within our membership in the body. What does that role look like? There's a lot of debate. There's a lot of debate. Some people look at this and they say, well, the role here is just saying that the eldership, the bishops, would demonstrate their power and authority through teaching the congregation. So women can't have a head pastor role. They can't have that kind of a role. Other people are like, no, women can never teach in the body whatsoever. I think that's unbiblical. I think that's foolish. But some churches go that direction. And no, you're testing the conclusion, not the information. We'd argue both passages. But does the conclusion match up with other verses? Were there examples of women teachers? Yes, Yes. absolutely. Were Were there examples of women head pastors? You might argue, and again, this is the debate, you might argue Priscilla and Aquila were co-regents over their home, but (laughs) it's not explicit, thus you can't make a point off of it. Absolutely. So while we can have debate about that, I like what Pastor Timothy Keller says out in New York. He's like, I'm willing to debate with you and not call you a heretic as long as you say that there is a role that is being restricted from women. What I'm not willing to say is that there is no restriction for women present in this passage. And nor is there any restriction for men either. That's the point. So if we understand our ministry and calling then, what do you say to the woman that feels like they're being called to be a senior pastor? Will God's calling line up with his word? If on the other hand, they'd say, you know, I'm just feeling good to teach. Great. (laughs) Wouldn't argue with that. But just make sure that it's also something God's called and equipped you to because you don't want to bring on that judgment either. God bless you. We'll see you all again next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope.
A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.